Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On the pod today, we will be airing the interviews from our two live shows in Ann Arbor on Friday. The first is with Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow, and the second is with Michigan gubernatorial candidate Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Great interviews, both of them, so we will be hearing those after uh, Dan and I run down the news. Good tour, Dan, huh? Did you have fun? Yeah, it was fun. It It was was great. And thank you to everyone who came out to see us. We had great crowds and really great questions from people. Our Chicago show is up as a live, as a uh, bonus pod right now, so that's good. The other ones are up as, uh, I think we have Cleveland up, and we have Madison up as well, and then now you're going to hear the uh, interviews from Ann Arbor. So, good trip, and we'll see everyone. So much content. So much content. So much. Speaking of content, Tommy's Pod Save the World. Tommy interviewed Elliot Cohen, who was a counselor to Condoleezza Rice during the Bush administration. He wrote a really interesting critique of Trump's foreign policy record from a Republican perspective. Uh, So they dig into that. They also talk about Elliot's views in Iran, North Korea, and what the hell it means to have a Republican or Democratic foreign policy worldview in the Trump era when everything is so scrambled. So go check that out. Crooked.com is just swimming in pieces right now. Dan Pfeiffer has a piece up on Crooked.com about Democrats gun strategy, which is excellent, Dan. I read it last night. Thank you. Alyssa Mastromonaco, friend of the pod, has her inaugural piece up on Crooked.com this morning, as does Ben Rhodes. Alyssa's is about her West Wing and uh, and how a president should fill the role of president. And Ben Rhodes is, is on the Iran deal, which uh, Trump is expected to decertify tomorrow, which we talked a little bit about at some of our during some of our live shows. And of course, Brian Boitler is just churning out content left and right as our editor-in-chief. So lots going on on Crooked.com. Check it out. Before we jump into everything Trump, I wanted to talk about the wildfires that are continuing to just devastate Sonoma County in California, just uh, just north of where you are, Dan, in San Francisco. I think the latest count is there's 23 dead and still hundreds missing, which is uh, very scary. Yeah, it's really so it's Napa and Sonoma County and sort of north of the northern California, right? And you can smell I can smell the smoke in my apartment right now. Oh wow. Like, it's not physically close to here, like so no what San Francisco's not in any danger, so I'm not trying to imply that, but it is but the wind is blowing the smoke into the city and a lot of people aren't going to work or going to school because of air quality and so it's a reminder of how serious these fires are. And so there are a lot of different ways that our listeners can help from large charitable organizations to campaigns to help individual people and helping animal shelters and other local food banks. And so as opposed to running that, spending 30 minutes running down all of those, I will tweet out an article from Fast Company that lists has links to the local shelters and local organizations and national ones who are helping because it's a really scary situation and it's getting – they are not making the progress because of weather reasons that they had hoped to by this point. And so it's a very scary situation for a lot of people who – who are displaced and uh, and whose property is in, has been destroyed or is in grave danger. Oh, good. Well, check that out uh, when Dan tweets that out, everyone. And I uh, should also say that in Puerto Rico, 
uh, the death count there is is still rising and there are still way too many people who don't have access to electricity. Uh, in fact, most of the island, there's still way too many people who don't have access to clean drinking water. There was a report this morning that people in Puerto Rico are, are drinking from Superfund sites, which are toxic because there's not enough clean water. I mean, it, it's it's really bad down there. And of course, did you see Dan Trump's tweets this morning about Puerto Rico, just sort of out of the blue where he said, by the way, we can't stay forever. FEMA can't stay forever. <laughs> like, what the fuck was that? So, and then did you also see reports that the aid package for Puerto Rico is a loan? No. So we're going to help you, but you're going to have to pay us back $5 billion. I just... Chris Hayes has been tweeting and talking about this, and I think it's really worth listening to what he's saying. Because guess what? No one's saying that any day now FEMA is going to leave Texas. Florida or Texas. And Texas and Florida aren't being forced to pay back the money to repair their homes and give them free drinking water. Um but there's something unique about Puerto Rico that seems to irk Trump in a certain way. I'm not going to speculate about what it is, but it's something. Again, these are American citizens. They have all the rights of uh, every other American citizen in every single state in the country. Uh, just because Puerto Rico is a territory doesn't mean that these aren't citizens that have the same rights as the rest of us. So this is uh, it's completely bullshit what Trump is doing, and we should not forget about it. And if you want to help Puerto Rico, go to globalgiving.org. And you can continue um, helping out the people uh, there who, who who desperately need help right now. So lots to talk about today in the news, all sort of swirling around Donald Trump. I think the theme of everything that we're about to talk about, Dan, is that Trump is uh, Trump is not a happy camper right now. <laughs> his, his legislative agenda has completely fallen apart. He has been president nine months. And uh, he has not had one single major legislative achievement. And he has been able to get nothing through Congress, despite having a Republican majority in both the House and the Senate. Um, he doesn't have a national security accomplishment to speak of. Uh, about 60-something percent of the country think he's doing a shitty job as president. His approval ratings are uh, lower than just about any other president in modern history at this point in the presidency. Just horrible press coverage except for uh, uh the maga media fox news and breitbart everywhere else even conservative outlets like national review and weekly standard just terrible coverage for trump and so he is he is angry he's unraveling a bit and so he's turning to executive orders because he has power there he's trying to start culture wars and he's you know tweeting about uh Kim Jong-un and other kind of national security issues because that's all that's all he can do. So that's sort of the backdrop to what we're about to talk about. And and what what he just did, what Trump just did as we're starting to record this on Thursday morning, is sign an executive order on health care. This executive order would allow insurance companies to sell shittier health care plans that don't cover pre-existing conditions and don't offer benefits like mental health care, maternity care, or prescription drug coverage. The idea is if enough healthy people buy these shittier Trump care plans, it will leave only sick people with the Obamacare plans. And as a result of that, prices will go up. At some point, this could cause insurance companies to pull out of entire counties or states. One thing we should know is that states can still regulate their own health insurance plans and make sure that 
their health insurance plans do cover pre-existing conditions and do cover some of these essential benefits that the Affordable Care Act tells you you have to cover, like maternity care, prescription drug coverage, et cetera. Um, so this executive order could matter most in red states where Republican governors want to follow Trump's lead and, uh, and matter less in blue states. But either way, it is, um, it is not a good thing for the Obamacare insurance markets. Dan, what do you think about this? Well, I like that you said that they want to follow Trump's lead, which I think is a very generous description of Republican governors. I like to think about it that they hate Barack Obama more than they love their own constituents. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so they're willing right. to make them suffer. It feels like the the Affordable Care Act battle is never ending, right? It's like you defeat it. You know, it's like that you're like you're sticking your finger in the dike, right? Everywhere, right. like we beat skinny repeal, we beat Bikra, we beat Acha, we beat whatever the thing is that we last beat that caused him to give up. And then Trump just takes out his pen and signs an executive order that potentially has grave consequences for a lot of Americans. And, you know, I was talking about it with Hallie this morning, and she's like, you have to talk about the executive order. I was like, trust me, we're going to talk about the executive order. And I was like, but what's so hard about it is on the other battles you could say, here's what you can do. Call your member of Congress, yeah. right? Protest, show up. And here is – this is – in this situation right now, we feel the consequences of losing presidential elections, where with just a pen, our president can do something incredibly damaging. But yeah. what we can do is Congress has the power to affect the implementation of these orders. They can use the power of the purse to infect them. They can use the congressional review process in other ways. And so if you needed one more possible reason, and I can't imagine that would be the case, but if you did – to care about, organize, and go vote in 2018, this is one of those reasons, right? Like the yeah. battle against Obamacare is going to go until the day Trump leaves office, but we can make progress in 2018. Yeah, there also could be legal, and there will be probably legal challenges to this executive yeah. order as the agencies try to implement it. You know, the executive agencies are the ones like the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor. These are the people who are charged with actually implementing this executive order. And so how they will do it, when they will do it, is unknown at this point. The other thing is, you know, we talked a lot on the tour about Get America Covered and organizations that sprouted up to try to sort of take some of the outreach effort into their own hands from because since the federal government decides has decided that they don't want to do an outreach effort to get people to enroll in Obamacare. But the more people we enroll in the Affordable Care Act the less of an impact this executive order will have. And again, if you are someone who qualifies for subsidies under the Affordable Care Act, if you sign up for health insurance and you qualify for subsidies, insurance companies uh, raising premiums and raising prices on these plans will not affect you because by law, your subsidies rise with the premiums. So if the premiums go up, so does your subsidies go up. So those people, so basically what this executive order could do is cost the federal government a lot of money because subsidies will rise along with the premiums for a lot of people. A lot, the people it will really affect is people who sign up for health insurance for the Affordable Care Act who don't qualify for subsidies, um, which are some, a lot of middle class people. And so this is who Trump, these, these Trump care plans are really going to hurt middle class people who sign up, who need to sign with pre-existing conditions, who try to sign up for Affordable Care Act plans, don't qualify for subsidies and suddenly get hit with these rising premiums because this executive order could potentially uh, really fuck up the insurance market. And that's a real problem. But, you know, if you go to Get America Covered, um, you know, we have a very small window because of the Trump administration to sign people up for 
the Affordable Care Act over the next couple of months, but uh, we need to make sure everyone knows about it, or as many people as possible know about it, so we can uh, so we can you know keep helping people sign up for this law and get health care. And people in their own lives, right? You can support Get America Covered by going to their website and using and some and supporting them there, but you can also take some agency on your own and you know use your social media feeds talk to your friends and family about it the odds are you ha- you know someone whether it's a coworker or a, you know a friend from school or whatever else who who would like to know about this deadline and so you can we you can carry the message yourself as well and try to get people to sign up because most people want to sign up the reason they don't is they don't know about the deadline right and so they may go looking for insurance in January and find out they are frozen out of the market for another year, um, it's you know it's it's really about informing people. In, inf- information is what's keeping people from signing up. So, you know, tell all your friends, annoy them about it, try to get them to sign up. Yes, definitely do that. So let's talk about the question of the moment this week: is uh, you know is Trump melting down here? Is 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 he uh, unraveling <laughs> even more than usual? We should probably start with the Hannity interview last night, which Dan, I know you DVR'd. <laughs> I did. I I have to. I missed it. I followed the highlights on Twitter, but I did not watch the Hannity interview. Um, Do you have any highlights you'd like to share with our audience? Well, it was Trump was not at his craziest. (laughs) Um, He it's like he really usually isn't with Hannity. I don't know. They well, he's relaxed. He He doesn't have any. Doesn't have anything to worry about. You know. Yeah, yeah. He's not angry. I will say that. Uh, for those of you who listened to the bonus pod from Chicago or in the audience where we did, okay, stop the love it or leave it game with the Hannity Huckabee interview yeah. or the Trump Huckabee interview is that Hannity makes Huckabee look like Tim fucking Russert. Like he, <laughs> it is not even, like there aren't even really, every question is like sets a context of Trump's success, right? Yeah. And, but there was like the optics were weird because you know, you have you've been in the room for one-on-one interviews where there's like tight shots, and they make the people, the interviewer in the interview, we sit super close together, right? Like almost where their legs are inter- almost intertwined. Yeah, it's but they did that on like this weird island in the middle of a huge crowd at this military base. I think it was an Air National Guard base in in Pennsylvania. But so it's just like they're sitting, like their faces are right next to each other, which is I'm sure what Hannity wanted. And <laughs> so that was weird. But the, some of the things that were, I mean, some of this is like patently obvious, but it's just interesting to see again, because Trump, you don't really see Trump do interviews. Is he has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. Yeah, Like there's one point where he claims that we have halved and almost eliminated the national debt because the stock market has created value of almost that much, which those two things could not be less related. I have, I have, <laughs> I have the quote here because this is the one part that I saw. So they borrowed more than $10 trillion, right? He's referring to the debt that went up during the Obama administration. So they borrowed more than $10 trillion, right? And yet we picked up $5.2 trillion just in the stock market. So you could say, in one sense, we're really increasing values. And maybe, in a sense, we're reducing debt. But we're very honored by it. No, there is no sense that you're reducing the debt because the stock market went up, you fucking moron, in the words of yeah. Rex Tillerson. I will say there was one interesting... Uh, he, you know, he railed about the media. He's very mad at Colin Kaepernick. The, you know, per usual, he and Hannity talked about African-American communities as if they were Fallujah because neither of them have ever been to an urban 
community. Right. Uh, they said he said minorities want police protection more than anyone. Have you seen what's and going they need on it, there? They, and they need it more than anyone. And else. they need it yes. more than anyone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Hannity, I mean, push is the wrong verb here. But Hannity tried to tempt Trump into saying that he would require the wall for helping the dreamers and Trump would not take the bait on that and oh, interesting. actually made a case for the dreamers, like 800,000 people. Most of them don't even, many of them don't even speak the language of the country they're from because they, you know, he, Trump said they'd never been there, which doesn't make any sense. But his point, I think, I think that's actually just misspeaking was, you know, the point that we've made for years and President Obama made is that they left when they were small children. They've been living in the United States their whole lives. They're American in every way but their papers. But Trump was, he actually defended the Dreamers in a way that was, you know, it was, I think, telling of how we ended up with the original Egg Foo Young deal. And then the last thing from that is there was a discussion about... Is that what we're calling it? We're calling it the Egg Foo Young deal? I I just went with with that. I was trying to find the the appropriate term. I mean, it's taken me a month to get to that. So it's like, (laughs) it's it's really like a, it's like a jerk store sort of situation. Um, But he also, when he, they were talking about Republican senators and John McCain in particular, the crowd booed viciously. It was just really interesting, which uh, goes to sort of really got him whipped up huh? versus Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he didn't have to do like the crowd was very calm for this whole thing. It was like it's a studio audience, basically. And when he brought up Republican senators and John McCain, they just started booing to a point that was like even striking for Trump, I think. Man, this is getting a uh, getting getting like a like a North Korean rally here. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Also, also, the commercials on Fox are. It's like there's there's a some whole gold? alternative. It was just a whole alternative world. Like you really listening to Hannity and the commercials. It's just you can under it's an alternative universe with no connection to reality where the economy was terrible under Obama. It's magically fixed under Trump. Trump has, in his own words, basically solved the problem of undocumented people crossing the border. Basically solved, but he still would like the wall because he's got to get that like last one percent. But it is well, super. It's the fox mentality, and it's not healthy. Appreciate the congrats. <laughs> so that so his interview with Hannity comes after uh, he had quite a day yesterday after an NBC report that uh, during a Pentagon meeting in July, the military presented Trump with data that showed how our nuclear arsenal had fallen from thirty-two thousand warheads in the late sixties when we were in the middle of a Cold War with the Soviet Union to 4,000 warheads now, and apparently Trump responded in the meeting by saying he wants us to go back to having 32,000 warheads. Lovely. Uh, Secretary Mattis later denied that Trump, quote, called for a tenfold increase in our nuclear arsenal, which more of a uh, non-denial denial, since what Trump really said is that he, quote, wanted a tenfold increase. He didn't actually, the report was not that he called for it. Very specific use of a verb. Right. And of course, we should tell everyone that this whole episode, this report, uh, this was the episode that led Rex Tillerson to call Trump a, in quotation marks, fucking moron. Um, <laughs> first of all, what did you think of this report? I mean, it it actually did not surprise me. You can, com- because no. Trump doesn't know anything about policy, history, governance, national security. He knows nothing about any of this. Nothing that has not been on Fox and Friends in the last month. That is that is the entirety of his knowledge. He doesn't read his briefings. He doesn't listen really during staff meetings. He doesn't know anything except for what he sees on television. So if you show someone like that a chart 
that shows the United States with all these warheads back in the 60s and many less warheads now, the most basic thought is, why don't we have more? I don't understand. More equals a stronger country. More equals greater defense. So we should have more, right? I mean, it, it seems very obvious that he would have that reaction. Yeah, I'm not surprised by this. I am. Surp- I guess I'm surprised that this was the point that caused Tillerson to call him a fucking moron because we have <laughs> this isn't even a near the dumbest thing Trump has said privately or publicly in a very long time, and it's fairly consistent with his own. General ignorance about foreign policy and national security and his simple-minded approach to the world of more is better, right? Whether right. it's nuclear weapons, whether it's gold toilets, what you know, whatever <laughs> it is, more is better. Which and so it's very- it's, just, it's so it's just so dumb. Like I don't even know what to think about. It. Like how many times does he want to destroy the world? You know, does he? Did he see Armageddon too many times and thinks this is part of our asteroid uh, contingency plan? I just don't know what he's thinking other than more is better. It is very – it's very scary in the sense that like you don't see him as some like authoritarian bent on destroying the world and, you know, global dominance and stuff like that. It's just a, it's just a very dumb person or ignorant person. Yes. Maybe, maybe there's some inherent intelligence that he hasn't – you know, there's this debate. Is he a real moron or not? You know, like – Whatever the case, he's ignorant. He's ignorant of all facets of U.S. policy, of all facets of government. He doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. <laughs> um, he hasn't bothered to try I mean, to, and he's been on the job nine months. He hasn't bothered to try to learn any of it. He doesn't care, you know. Yeah. The and two things. One, as you remember, just I guess it was yesterday that he, or the day before he challenged Rex Tillerson to an IQ test because in his IQ would certainly be higher. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd take him up on that, yeah. Rex. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you're gonna win that one, buddy. And then it does make sense. Like, I mean, Trump really is the lab rat who would get confused in the maze, which is like he only thinks in very straight. Like, there's no, he doesn't understand context or nuance. And so, if the like in his mind, if we are go, if someone like, if like he goes to the Department of Defense and says, "Present me options for war with North Korea." And they're like, one option is we do these strikes and then we send in troops and we, you know, we, you know, like there's, there's a one, there's a conventional approach, which includes casualties, in, you know, of American soldiers and takes longer. And then someone's like, or you could nuke the entire country in one day. Right. He would, uh, without, like, he can't think beyond that moment of like, well, if you do that, the entire world will, you know, will reject America and will have all these other consequences. And like he, so you wonder the simplicity of, the nuclear war is – you can see why that is appealing to him, which is fucking scary. Not a lot of cost-benefit analysis going on there. So Trump responded to this NBC story uh, twice on Twitter and once in the Oval Office uh, on Twitter by threatening NBC and the media in general, tweeting that their, quote, license should be challenged and possibly revoked. In the Oval, when he was asked about this, he said that it is, quote, frankly disgusting the press is able to write whatever it wants to write. Which is, you know, sort of the whole point of a free press. I don't know if he understood that. Now, this is, of course, bullshit. People should know there is no single license for NBC or any other network. Licenses are granted by the FCC to individual local stations. NBC doesn't even own most of the stations that broadcast its content. The FCC makes these decisions about giving licenses to local affiliates. The president does not make that decision. But by nighttime, he, he had, you know, Trump was encouraging people to challenge their local 
stations licenses, uh, which is a thing that you can do and you can complain about it to the FCC. This is very Nixonian. Apparently Nixon did this when a friend tried to take over a license held by the Washington Post and, and failed back uh, when Nixon was president. You know, this all these threats led to, you know, everyone freaking out about, uh, you know, Trump being an authoritarian, stepping on the First Amendment, which he clearly did by tweeting this. Ben Sass, conservative Republican senator from Nebraska, tweeted last night, tweeted at Trump to ask whether he was recanting his oath of office by refusing to defend the First Amendment. He joins Bob Corker in sort of sounding the alarm about, you know, the dangers of uh, President Trump this week. Now we have we have two conservative senators in the Republican caucus trying to sound the alarm about this guy, and we're all just sort of moving on like it's no big deal. Dan, what did you think about this? Is this a, is this a real thing we should be worried about? Is this just Trump venting? Is it somewhere in between? It. I guess there, there's a couple ways to look at this. One is Trump actually wants to find a way to restrict the free press in this country. That's yeah. that's option. If one. he could option wave a magic is, wand, he would do it. Let's. Yeah, 100%. Um, two is he wants – or he's just angry, right? So it's not even – he's just banging his head against the wall because that's all I can think of. Um, he's just an angry tweeter, like all the eggs out there. Yeah. Or three is this is part of a quasi-strategy. It's not a – strategy is the right word. It is a tactic, I guess, to that Trump does periodically, which – if you believe this theory, is that Trump knows that the press loves nothing more than to cover itself. And right. so he's got all these other problems happening, um, you know, with Rex Tillerson, with Puerto Rico, with failure, you know, just failures up and down his government. Ryan Zinke in big trouble right now. You know, a bunch of other people being investigated for charter flights, Russia collusion, Mueller. But if he seems like he's threat if he gets in a fight with the press that will be a dominant story yeah i don't know that we have to pick among those i think they're probably all somewhat true um i think we always say don't try to force you know view trump's actions through strategy they're more temper tantrums but i do think the one thing he is good at and does understand is how to make the press do what he wants them to do right he sort of gets that dynamic it may be more instinctual than intellectual um, yeah most certainly but the other takeaway is that Trump, you know, the queen was like, is this me? Trump is an authoritarian. Yes, Trump is an authoritarian. He's just an incompetent authoritarian. So yeah. he can't actually execute. You know, there's some things he can't actually do. Like he he can't really remove NBC's license. But there are – the president has lots of power – you know, too many powers probably to to enact their – to, you know, sort of enact their will – force their will on the country. But Trump is just so bad at it that he's just an ineffective authoritarian. The feckless despot. That's Trump. Feckless despot. Oh, I think we might have. Fe- I think we might have hit on something. There, there you go. Well, so th- this all moves towards this this Vanity Fair piece that Gabe Sherman wrote, which is it's quite a piece. You should go read it. It's titled "I Hate Everyone in the White House." Trump seethes as advisors fear the president is unraveling. Very cool. <laughs> Here are some of the highlights. Several people close to Trump uh, tell Sherman that they describe Trump as quote, unstable, quote, losing a step, quote, increasingly unfocused, and quote, consumed by dark moods. Yeah, no shit. What's causing it? Stalled legislative agenda. And then uh, very particularly, he is very upset that he backed Luther Strange in Alabama and that Strange lost the race to Moore because it showed Trump that the cult of personality around Trump does not hold that 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 perhaps Trumpism itself is more powerful and more influential 
than Trump the person. I thought that was pretty interesting, Dan. Is Trump melting down or unraveling or whatever the right term is, is kind of a question that answers itself. Yes, he is on a... He is on it's a been straight, a slide since the a, inauguration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He started a out burn. in a really bad position. Yeah, and it has gotten worse every day, and it will continue to get worse as long as he is in office, which may not last that long per Steve Bannon in this article. Right. <laughs> um, well, source close to Trump said that he vented to Keith Schiller, who was his former private security guard who became like his director of Oval Office operations, who left the White House recently. At one point, Trump screamed to, to Schiller, I hate everyone in the White House. There's a few exceptions, but I hate them all. That's what he said. Trump, I'm with you. I hate them all, too. <laughs> we, can, we can agree on that point. And then uh, there's reports that uh, John Kelly, the chief of staff, is miserable and might leave, but is there to prevent a disastrous decision. West Wing aides have worried about Trump's public appearances. Uh, one advisor said, quote, he's lost a step. They don't want him doing adversarial TV interviews. Again, no shit. Lost a step from when? (laughs) When was the when was he on firm ground? (laughs) Yes. When was he? When was he in in a commanding position? I don't remember that. Two sources said Bannon told Trump the risk to his presidency was an impeachment, but the Twenty Fifth Amendment. The Twenty Fifth Amendment is where the majority of the cabinet can vote to remove the president. Uh, Trump responded, "What's that?" <laughs> what, what do you think about this? We've talked about the 25th Amendment thing before. seems a bit far-fetched because not only does the majority of the cabinet have to vote to remove the president, but then uh, immediately that goes to Congress to sort of ratify. And so you'd still need uh, huge majorities in both houses of Congress to confirm the cabinet's decision to remove the president. Here's just a little lesson in life, whether it's the 25th Amendment, whether it's impeachment, whether it's congressional oversight whether it's going to the grocery store, any plan that requires Paul Ryan to play a leadership role is doomed to fail. And so what is actually the danger of this idea in, you know, we hear this all the time. We heard this a lot from the folks we talked to during our tour is that everyone wants results right now, right? It's like, what is the plan? Trump's been in for nine months. What is the plan to get him out by next week? You know, is it impeachment? Is it 25th Amendment? Is it Mueller frog marches him out of the White House into jail? What is the thing? And there is some danger in Democrats just holding out hope for things we have no control over. We cannot impeach Trump. We cannot enact the 25th Amendment. We cannot make Bob Mueller arrest him. Like, those are not things that can happen. The only thing we can do is organize a stop his agenda and then win elections. And like a plan that requires Steve Mnuchin to vote with some of his colleagues like Ben Carson and Trump's billionaire friends, uh, Wilbur Ross and Betsy DeVos seems like an unlikely thing to hang our hat on. No, this is, I, I, this is incredibly important because there's this feeling that like maybe Bob Mueller will save us. You know, maybe the uh, impeachment fairy will save us. Right? Like, like <laughs> something, some outside circumstance that leads to Trump's removal from office that is not an election where we work our asses off and organize and mobilize and elect a Democratic Congress, elect a Democratic House, try to elect a Democratic Senate, and then ultimately elect a Democratic president. Those are the only things that are going to remove Trump from office. I mean, look, yeah, 
off chance could impeachment work if something truly horrible comes to light? Maybe. I don't know. Why even bother no. predicting it? No. Why even bother predicting no. it or not predicting it? No, um, no it, it's not It's not happening. Trump, there is no crime that Trump could commit that would cause Paul Ryan between now and 2018 to impeach him. None. He, Trump could murder someone and Paul Ryan would be fine with it. And I'm like that's I'm not kidding. I'm actually not kidding. I think you can already see the world in which like Fox explains why it was actually and it was actually in self defense while that Trump killed this person and everyone won't believe it. Like there is no like Paul Ryan will do nothing to save us. Yeah. I think we've all realized I don't, but kinda... I don't like Paul Ryan. No, I <laughs> he's if I that think, wasn't clear. I don't think he's on the level. Uh, someone asked him about the Trump threat to take away media licenses today, and he said, I'm a constitutional conservative, and I'll just leave it at that. Cool. Cool. <laughs> it's Thanks, like Paul. what? It's like asking someone, what is your response to this racist thing someone said? I don't like racism. I'm an American citizen, and I don't like racism. Yeah. 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 Also, Paul Ryan has an oath to defend the fucking Constitution. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll see. <laughs> it, the last thing about that that Vanity Fair piece, which I thought was interesting, is uh, Bannon apparently said that Trump, and this was an associate of, of Bannon, someone close to the Trump White House who revealed this to Sherman, said that Bannon said Trump only has a 30% chance of making it through his first term, which is, after everything we just said, it's very interesting that, I don't know if that, I mean, it'll be int- it's an interesting thought from Bannon. I, I have heard, I mean, we've all heard from reporters and people who talked to Bannon that, that Bannon has sort of given up on trump as a figure as a president in in achieving everything that bannon hopes to accomplish but of course bannon has not given up on the idea of trumpism what sort of fueled their whole campaign and that is why he's mounting challenges to all these republican senators with you know a bunch of uh lunatic candidates like roy moore just to try to fuck up the system and uh and take everything down and it's hard to see the world unless the only way I could see Trump not finish a term would be if he, for some reason, decided he just didn't like the job and, you know, and decided to go home. But right. I don't think there's any. Seems unlikely because no that, other... would, that would that would that uh, would force him to concede that he lost something, you know, which I don't think yeah. he can do. So the last thing he's been doing this week uh, to sort of just stir up culture wars because he can't do anything else because he's a feckless despot. He's continuing to go on his uh, tirade against the NFL and the players who were taking a knee during the National Anthem. This week he threatened the NFL's tax exemption, which you know doesn't really exist, right? Yeah, they gave it never really mattered very much because it's the individual teams who could benefit but don't. But then even even given that in twenty fifteen the NFL gave up that tax exemption. Right. So that was so just it doesn't exist. Yeah, so much like the the media license thing, it's just, you know, a threat a sort of an empty threat. Um it seems as if Trump has persuaded at least some of the uh, folks in the NFL to go along with him. Roger Goodell said, had a statement that the commissioner of the NFL this week said he believes players should stand. And now the owners of all the NFL teams are meeting on this. And already Jerry Jones, the order, owner of the Cowboys, said that his players must stand or lose their jobs. What do you think about this, about all these rich billionaire owners coming around to uh to trump's view on this well the nfl owners almost to a person are bad people right (laughs) they i mean it's not like i don't i think that 
they are just they treat the players as disposable human beings, right? NFL players can't get guaranteed contracts. They for years just you know up until there's public pressure would just roll them back out on the field no matter how many concussions they had, you know. And there was this moment where like, well, we all like the owners because they offer one Sunday kneeled with the players. And then in many of most, a good portion of them gave over a million dollars to Trump, either through the inauguration or other means. And so in this, that was like one moment in time. And I think they definitely got some blowback like the, and have reacted to it. I can imagine Jerry Jones, who uh, is a Trump supporter in Texas, uh, you know, got blowback. But the thing that is, you know, I guess Goodell did not, had said, Previously, that he thought they should stand. Yeah, I saw per, that. Like, that was his personal view. So that wasn't a new thing. I thought it was a mistake for the NFL to announce that they were going to address this. Po- like, the NFL has not made a policy decision on this yet, but they're going to meet to discuss it, both players and owners. But it, it was a mistake to make the announcement that that was coming on the same day that Trump threatened their their mythical tax exemption because it just seemed like they were doing what Trump wanted. And, of course, this is why you can never – try to appease Trump is as soon as they did that, Trump tweeted out that the and that Roger Goodell in the NFL was finally doing what he told them to do. So it just makes yeah. their problem worse. Like you're almost better just ignoring Trump in this situation and just doing what you think is right. I just don't really understand. I mean, I think Roger Goodell is 100% wrong in his opinion that people should stand. I think both, yes, he may have that personal view, but as the commissioner of the NFL, a league with a majority of African-American players, he is making the situation, trying to make them all stand for, when not protesting the national anthem, they are protesting police violence and systemic racism in this country, something that gets lost a lot in this debate. As Fox News, and you heard this in the Trump Hannity interview, was trying to turn it into disrespecting soldiers who died fighting for this country, which is an absurd, that is a very legitimate point of view for individuals to have. You could make a decision that you believe the national anthem represents that and is right. And so you should stand, but it is a bad public policy to say that you cannot express your opinion. It's a first and, amendment, right? This is fucking right. ridiculous. I just, I mean, also the, the owners don't have as much leverage as they think. If Dak Prescott or Ezekiel Elliott of the Cowboys, the two most important best players in that team, if they knelt on Sunday, Derry Jones is not firing those people. That is yeah. not happening. No, well, this well, so the, I hope, I hope I was a player say, calls him out. Yeah, this comes down to the players, and you know, in that meeting, you said it's going to be, you know, Goodell and the owners and players too. Like the NFLPA, the Players Association, which is you know the union that represents all the players, like they've got to stand up uh, pretty strongly on this. You know, like they cannot allow this to happen, and and the players have to be united in this, and and that means white players, that means black players, that means players who have knelt, that means players who haven't knelt, whatever you believe. You can't allow the owners to push you around on this one. Let, let's all enjoy a fucking you know Sunday in the NFL without any players. Maybe the owners can just run around on the field themselves. I mean, give me a fucking break, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, the, it would be the, really the players have great. all the leverage here. Like, Colin Kaepernick has suffered, has been you know targeted and penalized for this. And if you, anyone who watches Sunday football knows that Colin Kaepernick should be in the NFL right now. There are a lot of very bad quarterbacks playing football right now um but it would be really great if star players either white or black were more powerful than the nfl and their individual owners did something about this right whether it's aaron Rodgers or tom brady or jj watt who i know is injured or dak prescott or 
uh, Ezekiel Elliott or you know any of the the most famous recognizable NFL players that, who would make it very hard for the NFL or their team to to penalize them. Uh, Trump said in his Hannity interview, it was like basically if Goodell had just suspended Colin Kaepernick for a game or two games when he first did this, then none of this would have happened, which I think is a pretty stupid way of thinking about it. Um, you know, the last thing on this is the NFL is in a tough situation because there's that poll, you know, we saw that poll yesterday that showed that now, uh, Republicans view the NFL more unfavorably than Democrats view Fox news. And that is a dramatic change in a short period of time. Yeah. It's like these polls that you see, where you know all like Republicans thought that the economy was doing poorly right before Trump became president, and then like the second after he became president, suddenly a majority of Republicans think the economy is doing well, and you know nothing substantively changed in the economy in, in the couple weeks since when Trump, between the uh, election when Trump was inaugurated, but suddenly they just have a a positive view of how everything's going. It's uh, just another indicator of how tribal. Uh, politics has become, which is just, and it, particularly on the Republican the, side, it is asymmetrical yeah. in how people view these things. Yeah, and it also is proof that the stick to sports notion or the keep politics out of things is it's an. It would be nice if there was some part of life that was permanently walled off from politics, where Trump supporters and Clinton supporters and Bernie supporters could all get together, pretend like they have no differences, but that doesn't exist anymore. If football is now becoming this battleground, you know, that is because is a proxy fight for all the other differences in the world and political differences in the world, then, you know, that that's just how life is. And which leads me into, I just want to say one thing about ESPN's decision to suspend Jamel Hill. Oh, yeah. Which was, you know, Jamel Hill was suspended for, we're not entirely sure why suspended, but basically she was reacting to Jerry Jones and saying to, to her followers on Twitter that if you care about this, and you want to stop it, the only way to, to exert pressure on individual NFL teams in the NFL itself is via sponsors, whether it's boycotts or which whatever else. True. It's how, you know, which is it's basically the only way in which uh, Fox was forced to deal with Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes was because advertisers were backing out because individual citizens were putting pressure on, on, on advertisers. Now, that is not a controversial statement. It is also a patently obvious statement, but this idea that you're going to talk about politics, be forced to talk about politics all the time on ESPN because of what Trump's doing, and Jamel Hill will get suspended for two weeks to do it as a sign of just the NF, the ESPN once again, and we've seen this many times, giving into you know put it, placing the their desire for sponsors and the relationship with the NFL above that above the loyalty they have for their employees and. It's a really bad, dumb decision in this world. We are past the point where someone like Jamel Hill can be pro- can or should be prohibited from having an opinion on anything other than the very specific issue ESPN wants to wants her to talk about. And especially in a world where ESPN, because of the way it's suffering broadly because people are cutting the cord and everything else, has banked everything on individual personalities. They asked Jamel Hill to host the six because she had this her a personal following and you know, and I sort of a very appealing, interesting personality. And then when she expresses one portion of that personality, this is Spender. It's just, it's stupid. And it's stupid. Uh, it's like an, it's th- a very old media way of acting yeah. too. It's like, and it's heavy handed and it's from the top and it is just, 
it is absurd. And the idea that like she shouldn't be talking about this, this is a huge, as we just said, it is impossible now to wall off politics from sports. This is a huge issue in sports, a huge issue in the NFL. And so as a commentator on sports, of course she should be talking about this. And of course she has opinions. Just as political commentators on the news on CNN also have their opinions about politics. Yeah, it's like if she just was on a live broadcast of SportsCenter and yelled out what she said, yes, they can suspend her. That's their place. But Twitter is a her is a different space. And I, you know, to your point, there's an old media way of thinking about. It. So the way they've the way ESPN has handled Jamel Hill, the Jamel Hill situation is a metaphor for why they are struggling so mightily in the changing media environment. Yeah. Ugh, bad stuff. Is there any any positive note to end on, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Trump's super unpopular. Super uh, unpopular. You know, I mean, there's a self-selecting audience bias here, but we met awesome, inspiring, yeah, activated people on our tour who are looking for things to do. They are, you know, engaged in politics in a way they'd never been before, you know. Which is that doesn't say that we engage them in politics, but they have come to listen to us, I think, because they become interested in politics. And talking to the people that we talked to throughout our trip was actually made me feel really good about the future of progressivism, the future of politics, the uh, future of our party. Like I thought, you know, I thought that it was a pretty, ins- really inspiring group of people, both the candidates and the people we talked to, like Tamar Manasseh, who from Chicago and her bravery and in, uh, in inspiring activism on the South Side of Chicago to prevent gun violence. Like there's, there are great stories out there that if you could just exclude stories that say the word Trump, you really uh, see some really great people doing great things in their community. The amount of people who came up to us and said they were running for office for the first time. I mean, dozens of people that we met in the various cities, which was really cool. I thought that was especially true. And, you know, we went to two colleges while we were on the road. We went to uh, University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison, and we went to uh, University of Chicago and uh, went to the Institute of Politics there that, that David Axelrod runs. And especially the students, you know, you you would think at a time like this with the news that we read every day that they would be pretty down and cynical and they were not at all. They were uh, they were inspired and they were they were ready to go do something about all this. And, you know, the, the most common questions to us were, what can I do? I want to go help, you know, make sure how can I help in the most effective way possible? And so that was good to see. And now we just need look, we need to see that not just in uh, 2020, as we've been saying, and not just in 2018, but you know, we've got a, a couple big races in uh, in Virginia, New Jersey, and in state houses all across the country. In a month now, we got an election day in uh, in November 2017, and then uh, and then we all got to get to work to make sure we don't have live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace. Yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began, or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So, uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added therapy back to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. Well, it's only going to make things better for the team. (laughs) (laughs) If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Low turnout, especially among young people in uh, in the 2018 elections. And if we show up in 2018, you know, we will be having very different conversations about about uh, Donald Trump and what's going on in Washington uh, after November of 2018 than we've been having this year. So that's that is one thing to keep in mind. The one thing I always think about when I think about the 2018 elections is basically presidents have to address the media after an election. And I think about what that press conference would be like if Democrats took the House back. Or the Senate, House and Senate, like how the look on Trump's face. You know, we went through that twice in 2010, 2014. It's no fun. And I would like Trump and his team to have to go through that painful process and us get to watch it in real time. Yeah. Well, all right. Keep that in mind as we uh, as we get to work <laughs> over the next year. OK, when we come back, we will have our interviews from Ann Arbor with uh, Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow and Michigan gubernatorial candidate Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Okay, our first interview in Ann Arbor was with Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow, conducted by Dan and Anna Marie Cox, who was on the road with us for all of the Ann Arbor shows. So here it is, our interview with uh, Debbie Stabenow. We are so grateful to be joined by your senator, one of the leading progressive voices in the Senate, a real champion for Michigan, Senator Debbie Stabenow. Good to see you. All right. I think they like you. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They don't, you know, they don't do that when I walk into the Senate. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to take you with me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. So we spent a, quite a bit of time talking about the most recent development with ACA uh, in the Trump administration, particularly the rollback of the birth control coverage mandate. How do you see the House and Senate responding to that? Well, first of all, it's terrible, and it's just one more nail, you know, in terms of trying to kill the ACA. And unfortunately, with the House and Senate being in Republican hands, we're not going to be able, probably, to turn that around. I mean, the good news is, in a very bad situation, is that democracy worked on health care, and people got engaged, and they pushed back, and we stopped them. And, and you know what? That really is democracy at work because they have 52 members in the Senate, as you know. We have 48. I like to call us the fighting 48. <laughs> but they had enough votes if they had stuck together. 
but people got engaged and had the courage, frankly, to tell their own personal stories and get engaged in a way that we've not seen in a long time that I'm really hopeful will carry over into so many other issues that we need to engage on. But it did show democracy works. On this one, you know, the Trump administration certainly is very willing to attack women and women's health care, and I think it's going to be tough to roll that one back. So a political question. Obviously, we were all shocked and disappointed when Hillary Clinton lost Michigan. Did you see that coming on the ground here, and what can Democrats do to get back on top of it? Because there is not really a path, an easy path to 270 without Michigan, which has been a core part of, the, of both of Barack Obama's wins and every Democratic right. win for a long time. Well, the last election, I think, was complicated, and one of 50 things, if it had changed slightly, she would have won, no question. Um, for me, the big question is what you said about the next election mm -hmm. and 2020, and we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again, right, you guys? <laughs> It's not happening again. It's not happening again. There's too much on the line here. I think a lot of folks kind of, there was a whole range of things that happened, including taking things for granted and assuming she was going to win and just various things. And, and, you know, we can critique it in a lot of different ways and including what we know now to be Russian involvement as well as mistakes made in the campaign. You can critique it a lot of ways. But this was a wake-up call. This was a wake-up call for all of us in our country about the importance of being engaged and involved and not taking for granted that we can stay home and not vote or not be engaged. I want to apologize if something you've already addressed. Uh, we joke sometimes about news breaking when we're up here, but uh, you're one of many Democrats that got a donation from Harvey Weinstein. So have you decided what you're going to be doing? No, absolutely. In 2012, he donated to me. We're sending it back to the domestic violence shelter. Yeah. yeah. I really, I really appreciate you saying that. You know, this is not a partisan issue, right? Sexual predators exist in the White House. Absolutely. In the White House. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fact check true. We know yeah. they, they, fucking day. Yeah. 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 They now have a national role model, you know, seriously, <laughs> yeah. which is disgusting, actually. Yeah. And, I mean, this has been a very tough period for a lot of women, a lot of people that have, have undergone this kind of trauma. I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to ask you about your own experience, but are a woman who employs other women, who employs other people, you've been in these very uh, male-dominated environments. What kind of guidance do you have, maybe, for young women who might face this kind of situation in their professional life or personal life? Well, first of all, you have to believe in yourself and have the courage to stand up for yourself. And that's easier said than done in situations. But then we have to support women and believe them when they step forward. Mm -hmm. Another contentious issue coming up in the Senate is tax reform. And you know, how are the Democrats going to fight back against a Trump tax plan? How would you tell the people here why this tax plan matters? Everyone understands why repealing the ACA matters, because taking out the Why does tax reform and lowering the corporate rate, and all the other things they're talking about, why does that matter to the people in the audience here today? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons, and I have to say that they're actually making it much easier to 
fight against it than I thought they would because of the way they have released it. Um, you know, first of all, and I'm on the budget committee as well as the finance committee as, and, and involved in, in many of these issues, but we had a budget committee debate and budget resolution which lays out what's going to happen uh, coming year on budget and taxes and so on. And for them, it's all about the tax cuts. And it's not about a tax system that's fair for everyone or supporting families or uh, small businesses that are the fastest growing part of the economy or closing loopholes, taking jobs overseas, stopping companies from pretending to leave on paper when they're really here, but they then just don't contribute to clean air and clean uh, water and building the roads and so on because they're not part of you know, contributing to the country. There's a whole range of tax loopholes that we ought to be closing. They don't do any of that. So what they've done is say 80% of their tax cut goes to the top 1%, average $200,000 cut per person for the top 1%. They raise the rate on the lowest income people. They raise the tax rate. And if you have more than one child, you actually, because they do away personal exemption, you will pay more taxes. So a mom with three children pays $1,000 more in taxes, potentially. And then, with that... <laughs> that's, this does not sound No, good. no, we're not done. <laughs> then, I hate to say it, but they come back one more time on health care because their plan pays for this in part by not only taking... $1 trillion on Medicaid, and in Michigan, most of our seniors in nursing homes get their health care. They're paid for in nursing homes through Medicaid, plus families and children. But now they, in addition to the Medicaid, which we just beat back twice, they take another almost $500 billion out of Medicare. So that's their tax plan. <laughs> their tax plan to, ta to cut health care yeah. and... I think, I think you sold it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if we want to do it right, you know, I'm happy to do the right kind of tax reform and simplify the code, as, the code, as I said, and, and close tax loopholes that companies like pharmaceutical companies are using to leave this country and not pay their fair share of taxes while they're raising everybody's drug costs. One last quick question for you. You, you might have a very interesting opponent. Do you have any reaction <laughs> really? to this opponent who will go unnamed? <laughs> well, let me just say, I also play the guitar, just for the record. <laughs> Is that how you're going <laughs> to... I actually worked my way through college playing acoustic guitar. And All right. So... <laughs> We may have to have dueling guitars, depending on what this right. happens here. Right. But uh, we'll wait and see. We'll wait. I love music, and uh, we'll, we'll wait. It could be a very, it could be very musical fall election. All right. Well, well we will watch it very carefully. Sarah Sabanel, thank you so much for joining okay. us. And thank you for everything you do. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. 
when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. When booking with other vacation rental apps sounds like this. This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Whoa, what the... Is there a door behind all those spiders? <laughs> it's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation. <sighs> Look at how many spiders there aren't. Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first? Relax. You booked a Verbo. Our second interview was conducted by Anna, Marie Cox, and me with Michigan gubernatorial candidate Dr. Abdul El Sayed. He's a fascinating candidate. If he won the governor's race, he would become the first Muslim governor in American history, uh, which is very interesting and very inspiring guy. Obviously knows a ton about public health as well. That's his background. He was the uh, Detroit Health Commissioner for a while. So this is our interview with Abdul. At 30 years old, he became the youngest ever health official of a major U.S. city. He's the health director of the city of Detroit. He's now running for governor, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Okay, so you, uh, you were the uh, public health director for the city of Detroit. What made you decide to, to get into politics? Why did you decide to run? This is the first time you've ever run for office, right? Yeah, I was never supposed to run for office. I, I want to be a doctor because I loved people. I loved science. And I, I had this opportunity to come home to Detroit to rebuild the health department that had been shut down by emergency management, state takeover of the city's finances and... I was rebuilding it. We were doing things that were uncommon for a health department, uh, building programs to guarantee kids access to glasses free of charge delivered at school, uh, standing up to some of the biggest corporate polluters in our state, making sure that they were accountable to the fact that children in Detroit have triple the likelihood of being hospitalized for asthma than the rest of the state. And after we heard about Flint, we realized that uh, I had just finished inspecting the schools. I saw things like mice dead in the corner some state of decay because they hadn't been cleaned up, kids wearing their coats until 11 a.m. Uh, because the boilers in their schools didn't work. And we realized in that moment that it was possible that our kids could be exposed to lead. So we got to work. We, we put together the country's first citywide protocol to have every th- single school, daycare, and Head Start tested for lead in the water. Uh, we tested all 360 schools. We tested all, all 360 schools, and uh, we did it in six months. But that was a bit of a wake-up call, right? I, I'm, I'm rebuilding an agency that had been shut down when the state took over the finances for the city, watching as the same system of emergency management was poisoning 9,000 kids in a city with a profile very similar to ours. And I thought about the kids that I got to interact with day-to-day at the health department, the, the people that I came to work for every day. And I asked myself whether or not I could persist answering one agenda item on someone else's agenda or resetting the agenda in the state around the things that should matter most, which are whether or not we are empowering young people to live the kind of dignified lives that every single kid deserves in this country. And so in that moment, and in that moment, I I think it became pretty clear. And I'm also watching as Donald Trump is rising to power at the federal level, taking ideals that to me are at core of who we are as a country and 
uh, throwing them in the mud. And uh, you know, I grew up, I was privileged to grow up in a family where my father was uh, an immigrant from, uh, from Alexandria, Egypt. And, uh, and my mom, who raised me from the age of three, my stepmom, uh, she grew up in a place called Gratiot County, Michigan. Anybody from Gratiot County? Anybody? All right. <laughs> that, that gives you the point there. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I grew up in the house built by Muhammad and Jackie. And so I know that our country is big enough for all of us. I know that immigrants come here believing in the kind of society where their kids can grow up and do things like run for governor. And so, um, you know, how dare we take that away from people? And so in that moment, I realized that there was a responsibility to stand up. And uh, it's been an incredible journey so far. So this radical idea of applying science to political problems almost feel like, I mean, it's probably always been true that the public health lens uh, can be, is uh, useful to view political problems with, but right now we're facing a couple of things in the news and the headlines right now that seem like they need a public health lens, the opioid, opioid epidemic and gun violence. What kind of thoughts do you have about your bringing what you know about public health to those two problems? Yeah. I, and in I Michigan, mean, actually, let's talk about opioid epidemic first, because I'm sure these people know. 11 million prescriptions for 11 million people. Opioid deaths have now outpaced both auto accidents and gun violence. What do you do from a public health perspective as governor? Yeah. So my wife, if I don't, I don't see her here, but uh, see a beautiful... There she is. Beautiful woman walking around with a very, very obtunded abdomen, eight months pregnant. Uh, she's, a, she's a psychiatrist. And so there's not a day that goes by that we don't talk about uh, the ways in which the opioid epidemic is fundamentally tearing apart the fabric of rural communities in Michigan. And... A lot of this has to do with a system that helps to create the means within which you have a lot of powers that be, corporations, uh, large hospital uh, systems, insurance industries, that create systems where incentives drive certain behaviors. And what public health shows us is that the, the circumstances that people live in have everything to do with the environment in which they live. And, um, you know, you drive from Ann Arbor, which has the highest life expectancy in the entire state of Michigan to Detroit, it's about 45 minutes. In that drive, you also drive about 15 years difference in life expectancy. That has nothing to do with differences in biological mechanisms, has everything to do with access to a very basic set of resources. So when we talk about the opiate epidemic, one of the big challenges that we have is, number one, I think the House of Medicine has a lot of blame here. Uh, physicians have not been as responsible for the consequences as, of this as they should be. We have the makers of opioids. I was going to say, do you take on, do you take on pharma? Uh, absolutely. Look, the makers... We have the manufacturers of a set of medicines that were intended to be used for a particular purpose who knew that those medicines could be repurposed and therefore consumed more and therefore pushed those medicines in certain ways that actually built up and became tinder for the opioid epidemic that we have now. And then lastly, it's about being able to build the outpatient circumstances that we need for people to be able to get the care that they need. You know, in this state alone, we went from, there's a big transition in mental health care that took us from inpatient psychiatric units to outpatient uh, psychiatric care. But what happened in this state is when we deconstructed the inpatient units, we then delivered a tax cut and nothing ever got built on, built on the back end. And then the last thing we have to talk about is stigma, right? Unfortunately, almost everybody in Michigan knows somebody who's been affected by opiate use. And it's easy for us to see the people in our families and say, well, I know that person, they're a good person. But then anybody else outside of that circle, well, th there's got to be something wrong with them. But if we were only willing to take that empathy and recognize that actually everybody is somebody's loved one, and we have to destigmatize this issue if we're going to be able to take care of it. 
So you've said that you have family who voted for Trump yeah. and that they did not vote for Trump because of some animus from Muslims. They voted for Trump because they felt he was at least speaking to an experience that they faced. Talk about that yeah. experience. So one of my favorite uncles, born and raised in Gratchy County, voted for Donald Trump. Uh, he and my aunt. And um, just amazing people. I mean, this is the guy who showed me the, the beauty of a mustard pretzel. I don't know if you ever had one. <laughs> but it's like, it's like its own meal in a pack. Um, I mean, he's not somebody who hates Muslims in any way. But this is a guy who drove truck. And in 2008, when a lot of the small businesses in Michigan took a hit, his did too. And he was in a position where he had to lay off people who he knows and loves, whose kids he knows and sees, uh, who he feels deeply responsible to as a proprietor of a business. And since then, the last 10 years, if you talk to establishment folks on either side, they say, well, the economy's back, right? Don't you see that stocks are trading at record highs? It must be that the economy's back, except for if you look at what happened in the intervening 10 years, if you look at statistics that people feel in their pocketbooks, things as simple as labor participation or real wage, they're not back. And so when you talk about his felt experience and the people around him, nothing has gotten better. In fact, it looks like it's getting worse because it's stagnated for so long. And so he seemed, in the general, to feel like he was between a rock and a hard place. Somebody who seemed to be talking to people like him and saying all kinds of other crazy stuff, or somebody who didn't seem to care at all, right? However fair that Wait, is. And so he, he voted for Donald Trump. Right. And, um, you know, the good news is he's going to vote for me. Uh, <laughs> how, did, how does he feel about Donald Trump now? Yeah. I mean, I think he's disappointed. But here's the frustration that I have with the conversation that we have about that individual. It's that every time we talk about him, it almost seems like people on our side of the aisle want to be like, gotcha, don't yeah, you see, you made right. a mistake. And at the end of the it. day, there's, only exa- there's no empathy there. If we really truly want to inspire people to see the world that w- the way that we do, we have to understand the way that they see it in the first place. And if you're reacting out of the kind of frustration that my uncle was reacting out of, it doesn't help us to then be like, see, you're an idiot, right? That's not a, a fair conversation. The fair conversation says, listen, hey, I, I get your pain. I understand that you're frustrated. Now let's talk about how we can focus on the problems that you face and then posit a set of solutions that actually seem to actually be able to solve the problems. And what I've learned, I mean, we've traveled to 90 different cities, 45 different counties, spoken in hundreds of rooms now, and it doesn't really matter where you go. If you talk to poor or working or retired people in places like Detroit or poor or working retired people in places like Kalkaska up in the, the pinky area of the, of the hand, Michigan love, huh? People are talking about the same problems, right? They're asking very simple questions. How do we unlock the economy for people who seem to have been locked out for a decade? How do we rebuild schools in this state that are worth the dignity of our children? How do we make sure that people don't have to make that evil decision between getting sick and needing the treatment that they need or having to put their families in deep financial straits? How do we make sure that everybody in Michigan can walk tall for who they are? These are questions that unite us. And in in this state in particular, we sit on 21% of the world's fresh water. And it seems like we're told that we can either have our economy or we can have our environment. We can't have both, right? And those are the issues that people talk about. 
right? And so if we're willing to actually pay attention to those things, posit real solutions, and be credible on how those solutions can actually impact the lives of folks, I think there's a way that gets us beyond having to look at the other guy and say, isn't he so bad? We were right the whole way along, right? If we want to justify our own feelings of righteous indignation from 2016, that's one thing. But if we want to win elections and we want, more importantly, to solve problems for people who are truly suffering big challenges, then I hope that we can get past what happened in 2016 and start talking about solutions to problems that everybody faces in their lives. Because when we do, we win. Abdul, thank you so much for doing this. This is really great. It was my pleasure. It's an honor to be here. And uh, thank you guys so much for having me. And go blue. All right, those were our interviews with Senator Stabenow and Abdul El Sayed. Hey, Dan, it's Lovett. Lovett's here. Oh, I spent so much time with you. I really felt it was like Phantom Lovett would not have you around these last two days. <laughs> I just wanted to say one thing, and this is what I wanted to say. Don't you think it's strange that Donald Trump could have gone the other way on the NFL and chosen the Republican issue? Because he started out by talking about how they won't let them hit each other anymore and they're trying to make football weak. I feel like he backed into this. That's not a culture issue, though. Well, That's not wor- as clearly Republican. It didn't work. It didn't work. Anyway, that's Love all it. I, I thought your say. tweet about liberals getting the NFL and the divorce was top notch. Oh, you know what? I thought it was oh, fine too. Here I thought it was go. fine here too, Dan. Go. I literally said it out loud to John and Tommy. Got he a did. got that's a mild true. response. I thought, you know what? We that's chuckled. Tr- no, we, we I think it was a pretty hearty laugh. Yeah, you guys are an easy laugh. And so I tweeted it. <laughs> <laughs> I tweeted it, and then all these people responded saying I stole a joke. As it, I, you know what? I didn't steal a joke. I just had an idea that someone else had had because maybe it wasn't that original. Maybe that's my sin. Anyway. Well, but I thought you'd learn the lesson about fake news better. You brought up the controversy here. Now it's a whole thing. You should have just said that Leo was barking and you could have you know done what? more so for dis- your... You know what? It, well, it was distracting with Leo barking. <laughs> <laughs> who, who makes it this far? <laughs> <laughs> got a big love it or leave it tomorrow. We got, there, there we go. We got a big love it or leave it tomorrow. All right, everyone. We'll all talk to you soon. We'll talk, we'll talk to Monday. you on Monday. Love it or leave it over the weekend. It's great. Goodbye. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.